All right, you guys can take your seats. And if you have a Bible or an electronic device that you're going to use as a Bible today, if you would turn to Luke chapter 19, that will be our, our passage for this afternoon. So, Luke chapter 19. So, today is the day when we and the rest of the Christian church celebrate Palm Sunday. Now, you may have seen earlier today, if you were out and you were around churches, you may have seen people selling palm branches on the side of the road. I'm not sure what your remembrance uh, is of Palm Sunday as a child, but for me it was, it was the Sunday when we uh, were given these branches and we would sort of reenact Jesus coming into, into Jerusalem. The problem is that whereas this is a normal palm tree, right? <laughs> This is what we know as palm trees. We see them here. I think this one's in Palawan. Uh, where I'm from, Taga, Georgia, the U.S., Walang palm tree. Pero, meron palmetto tree. Okay? Palmetto. Palmetto tree. But there is one, <laughs> one significant difference between a palm tree and a palmetto tree. Okay? I don't know if you can tell, but those leaves, they're not so much like leaves. They're more like biodegradable swords. <laughs> and when you give kids <laughs> these little spears, uh, you run the risk of lots of bloodshed. Uh, so Palm Sunday, I was just thankful to, uh, to get back to my home without stitches. Um, well, we have much more in store for us than palm branches in our passage this afternoon. Our passage shows us that Jesus is king. I don't know if you noticed the songs that Pastor Abbott led us through uh, earlier, but they, they focused on this reality that Jesus is our king. And our passage is going to show us the kind of king he is. And while we acknowledge Jesus as our king, and while the people in the passage acknowledge Jesus as king, he may not be the kind of king that you are expecting. So let's read together in Luke chapter 19, verse 28 through 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his, the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the, down the Mount of Olives, 
the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the word of the Lord to us this afternoon. Let's pray together before we look more deeply into this passage. Father, we thank you for this, this Lord's Day, the day where we celebrate Jesus coming into Jerusalem as the King. The beginning of this last week of Jesus' life that we know will end very differently than it began on uh, this Sunday. Between this Sunday and next, there will be much that will take place. And we pray that this afternoon, as we look into this passage, as we see the people ushering Jesus in as King, we would understand more deeply, more personally, the kind of king that you are, and that we would submit to you as that king, and that we would experience all that your kingship means to us. We would experience the blessing of living under you as our king. So open our eyes as we look into this passage today. Show us great and wonderful things in your law. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Nine days, 13 hours, about 42 minutes-ish. That is how much longer you have to wait until the first showing of Endgame here in Manila. Okay? <laughs> I know that you're counting down just like I am, right? The days, the hours, and the minutes. Honestly, I'm really looking forward to this movie, maybe more than any movie I've ever seen, which I am afraid that I, it can never live up to my expectations, right? <laughs> this has got to be the best uh, movie ever made. But one thing is absolutely certain, whether or not it lives up to our expectations, Endgame will bring in a ton of money, okay? They are going to make bank on this movie. Now, uh, how much will they make? Well, the first uh, Avengers movie made $1.5 billion with a B. Okay, that's how much money they made, $1.5 billion. Okay, the second, Age of Ultron, $1.4 billion. Not quite as good. Infinity War, over $2 billion. Okay, that is like the GDP of a small country. Okay, on one movie. That's how much money they made. And they're predicting like maybe close to $3 billion that this, this movie is going to bring in. I mean, it's, three, it's over three hours long. It ought to bring in a lot of money, right? Uh, now, the numbers, they beg a question. Why are we willing to pay so much money for a movie like this? I believe it is because these movies, they put forth a theme 
that resonates with all of our hearts. And that is that we want a hero. We want someone who will fight for us, someone who will defeat our enemies, and someone under whom we know that life is safe, okay? that we can experience peace. And we all want a king. If you think about the, the movies that Hollywood has put out, it tells us the kind of king that we're looking for. Oh, those all came up at the same time. Uh, we want a king who is, is noble, right? Like King Arthur, a king of majesty. We want a king who is brave, who is going to, to the sacrifice of himself, who's going to fight our battles and courageously go against our enemies. And then we want a king who is going to unite the people to defeat evil and to establish a reign of, of prosperity and peace. That is the kind of king that we want. But what I want us to look at today and what our passage is going to show us, or it's really going to, to beg the question, but what kind of king do we need? That's the kind of king we want. But what kind of king do we need? We're approaching the end of Luke's gospel. We've been working through Luke's gospel for, for several weeks now. And we're in the final days of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. And in these last moments of, of Jesus' life, Luke begins to zero, on, zero in on a theme that, he, that has permeated all through his gospel, but he brings it into clarity in these last few chapters. And that is, Jesus is the coming king. I want to show you just how Luke begins to lead us along this road in these last chapters. Oh, they all came up again quickly. Uh, all right, so um, we see in a parable just before our passage uh, here in, in Luke 19, Jesus gives a parable about the kind of the way the kingdom is going to come. He, and he, he says, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom. And Jesus is telling this parable because he's. It, before it, he prefaces it by saying they thought the kingdom of God was going to come immediately. And so Jesus, to correct their misunderstanding, tells this parable. A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom, but he does receive a kingdom. Then in our passage, we see this crowd of disciples saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Actually, if you look at that passage in the Psalms, the word king is not there. It's added in. Luke adds it in here. Because it's implied there in the passage, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then at the Last Supper, Jesus says, my father has granted me a kingdom. At Jesus' trial, Pilate looks Jesus in the eye and says, are you the king of the Jews? And when Jesus is mostly silent before Pilate, he speaks up and he says, it is as you say. Of course, at Jesus' crucifixion, the... The crime that was nailed above his head on the cross where they posted what the criminals were being crucified for said, this is the king of the Jews. And then the thief on the cross just a few moments before Jesus would die said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And all, although the disciples 
had rightly come to the conclusion that Jesus was the Messianic King. As these last days of Jesus' life unfold, it becomes clear that he was not the king, the kind of king that the people were expecting, and his kingdom would not come in the way that they thought it would. And the same can be true for us. We believe that Jesus is our king, but like the disciples, we often want Jesus to be a king after our own making. We want Jesus to fight for our agenda, for our interests. And we want him to do that in the way that we think that he should. But our passage makes two things clear this afternoon. And one is that Jesus is God's anointed king. He is the Messiah. And if we will ever experience all the things that we want in life, joy and peace and security, we must submit to him. And Jesus it also teaches us that Jesus is the king that we need even when he may not be the king that we want. So what kind of king is Jesus? Well, our passage tells us that Jesus is a king of promise, Jesus is a king of power, and Jesus is a king of peace. Okay, so that's the three things that we're going to look at this afternoon. First, Jesus is the king of promise. Beginning at the, at the end of Luke chapter 9, there's a phrase that we begin to see throughout the rest of the Gospel of Luke until our passage today. I want you to see if you can pick it up, okay? All right, Luke 9:51. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Chapter 13. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Chapter 17, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Chapter 19, verse 11, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. 1928, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Verse 37, as he was drawing near to Jerusalem, already on the way up down to the Mount of Olives. And then verse 41, And when he drew near and saw Jerusalem, he wept over it. Of course, the theme throughout that is Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem. Beginning from this verse here in, in chapter 9 until our passage. Uh-oh. Scholars call this the, the travel narrative, okay? Because... All, everything that happens between Luke 9.51 and our passage today in chapter 19 is on Jesus' way to Jerusalem. He's making his way, his, his final steps on this earth toward Jerusalem. Now, why is that so significant? Why does Luke keep emphasizing that Jesus is going to Jerusalem? Well, there's two reasons. First, we know what's going to happen in Jerusalem. We know that Jesus is going to, def- to, to fulfill his divine mission, the reason that he came to this earth. We know that Jesus has to go to Jerusalem because there's a cross that's waiting for him there. But there's another reason why Jerusalem is important. 
It is the city of God's king. It's the city where the temple was, where God's presence was among his people. And it was the place where God was going to install his anointed king, the Messiah, who would usher in a kingdom that would never end. We could look at a lot of places in the Old Testament where we see this, but one is right here in Psalm 2. And this psalm, it shows us the significance of Jerusalem. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Then the Lord will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, which is another term for Jerusalem, on my holy hill. So the Lord says, I have installed my king, my anointed, which, is, which means Messiah, and he's going to reign in Jerusalem. Psalm 10 is a psalm that, that Jesus referred to uh, in his dialogue with the Pharisees. He says, saying that this is referring to me, and he says, Psalm 110 says this, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion, that's Jerusalem, your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. You see, when God was, would bring the kingdom to fruition, he was going to do it by installing his king, his, his Messiah, in Zion, and that king would bring judgment to the nations, and he would exalt God's people, and he would reign on David's throne, and he would usher in this eternal state of peace and prosperity for God's people. And that can only happen in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place of God's anointed king. And so over and over, as we approach the end of Jesus's life, Luke wants us to make sure that we see he's going to Jerusalem because he has to receive a kingdom. But to make sure that we don't miss the fact that Jesus is indeed the, this messianic king who's coming into Jerusalem, we're told this peculiar uh, detail about Jesus riding in on a colt, okay, on a donkey. Now, it's a bit odd in our passage. I don't know if when we read it, you felt that it was a bit odd that Luke spends so much time talking about this donkey, right? <laughs> He's like, Jesus told his disciples to go into town, and when you get there, you're going to see a donkey. And then I want you to untie the donkey. And then when some people say, why are you untying that donkey? You tell them, the Lord needs it. <laughs> and so you would think that would be enough, right? We, we know what's going to happen. But then... Luke says, and that's what happened. His disciples went into town, and they saw the donkey. And some people asked them, why are you untying the donkey? And he says, the Lord needs it. Why all of this space about a donkey, right? I mean, maybe if it was like a war horse. Um, why a donkey? Well, because Jesus, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on this colt was an exact fulfillment of the prophecy of the Messiah. Okay, Zechariah, uh, one of the Old Testament prophets, he says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. 
Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Okay, this is the Messiah, your king. He's coming. Righteous and having salvation is he. Again, that's the Messiah. He's going to put all God's enemies under his feet. He's going to exalt God's people. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, this is the only time in, in Jesus' earthly life that we, we read that he, he rode on anything. Okay, Jesus was poor. This wasn't even his donkey, right? <laughs> I mean, he had to tell the disciples, hey, when people say, why are you untying that? That's not yours. The Lord needs it. Okay, all right, well, the Lord needs it. Uh, Jesus didn't have a donkey. Jesus didn't have a horse. He never rode one. He went every, He walked everywhere he went. That's all we see him doing is walking. Jesus wasn't riding into Jerusalem for efficiency. He wasn't riding into Jerusalem because he was tired. He was riding in, into Jerusalem on a colt of a donkey to make a statement. I'm your king. I'm the one that you've been looking for. I am the one who is fulfilling all of these Old Testament prophecies. I'm the Messiah. And the reason that that's important to us, that Jesus is the promised king, us living nearly 2,000 years after Jesus rides in to Jerusalem on this cult, is that it affirms that Jesus is the one who all of redemptive history is pointing to. Jesus is the only one who can bring deliverance into our lives. Jesus is the only one who can be the kind of king that we need. And the disciples, after Jesus' resurrection, they said it, they said it all when they, when they made the proclamation, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There is no other king. There is no one, there is no other one who can bring deliverance other than the king of promise. The king that all of redemptive history is pointing to. The king of David who will reign on his throne forever. Establishing and upholding this kingdom with justice and righteousness forever. Jesus is the king of promise and that brings us to our next point. He's also the king of power. In order for the messianic king to bring deliverance to God's people and judgment on God's enemies, he had to be a powerful king. And Luke tells us in one statement in our passage how we know that Jesus is this king of power. Okay, in verse 37, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Okay, so the way that Luke phrases that, because of all the mighty works that they had seen, they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. Okay? So they saw in Jesus power. They had seen Jesus express his power in their life with him. How had they seen that? How had they seen these mighty works of Jesus? Well, they had seen Jesus drive out demons. They had seen Jesus cleanse people with leprosy. 
They had seen Jesus heal the blind and the deaf and the lame. They had seen Jesus calm a raging storm with the word of his mouth. And they had even seen Jesus raise people from the dead. And so, as they see Jesus riding into Jerusalem, and they think about all the mighty things that he has done, they logically and rightly conclude, Jesus is the King of power. He is our Messiah. In fact, immediately after Jesus, and, and this was not just the disciples who, who understood this, but others as well. And earlier on in Jesus' ministry, kind of at the height of Jesus' ministry, when he fed the 5,000, which is really more like 15,000 when you include women and children, John tells us that when the people saw the sign, that they intended to come and make Jesus king by force. Why? What was that all about? It's because they saw his power. They saw him bringing down bread from heaven, and they say, oh, this is the guy that Moses talked about, the prophet that was going to be like Moses, who would rain down bread from heaven. He's this king of power. He's the one. We need to, we need to make him king. But Jesus knew that he, they didn't want him to be the kind of king that he really was. And Jesus says that Jesus slipped through uh, their, their grasp. But here, they see. They've seen the, the miraculous things that Jesus has done, and they know that Jesus is no ordinary man. He possesses power that comes only from God, power that would be present in the Messiah. But Jesus didn't just do random acts of power simply to show that he possessed it. In fact, that's exactly what Satan tempted Jesus to do. You remember in the, in the wilderness, before Jesus began his ministry, Satan said, go up to the top of the temple and throw yourself down, because it's written, he will not let, let your foot strike against the stone. Satan was tempting Jesus. Satan said, go show everybody your power. Show them how great you are. And Jesus said, no, it's also written, don't put the Lord your God to a test. My power is, is not for my glory. My power is to bring redemption. You see, Jesus, Jesus' power, Jesus didn't show his power. He didn't express his power uh, to, to simply bring attention to the fact that he had it. He demonstrated his power to bring redemption to reverse the effects of the fall, to restore what sin had taken away. I want you to think about Jesus' miracles. Jesus brought, excuse me, sin brought sickness and, and disease. Jesus' power brought healing. Sin gave opportunity for demonic oppression. Jesus' power drove them out. Sin brought hostility into God's creation. Jesus' power restored peace and calm. Sin snuffed out the life of people made in God's image. Jesus' power raised them from the dead. And that's why when John the Baptist's disciples came to Jesus, and they asked Jesus, Are you the one who is to come? I.e., are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we've been expecting? Or should we look for someone else? Do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, 
Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news, or gospel, is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus pointed to his works as proof that he was the Messiah, that he really was the one who was going to come and undo what sin had done. And so Jesus' miracles were, were always redemptive, reversing the effects of the fall, because that's what the Messiah was going to do. He was going to put everything right that had been broken by sin. So what does this mean for us? Well, it means that Jesus, as our King of Power, He has all sufficiency. He has all power to do what is necessary to deal with everything in our lives that sin has broken. Okay, your sin or the sin of others. He has power to deliver you from it. And if He doesn't use His power to deliver you from it, then He has power to give you the strength to endure it. Okay, power to heal marriages that are strained and at the point of breaking. Power to heal and battle depression and emotional trauma. Power to heal sicknesses that ravage our body on this side of heaven. Jesus has power to bring deliverance. And if he doesn't bring deliverance, then he will, he will use his power to strengthen you and enable you to endure it even though, because he has some good purpose, some redemptive purpose for it in your life, even though you might not see what that is at the moment. Jesus is our king of promise. He's the Messiah. He's the one that was to come. Jesus is our king of power. He's the one who has the ability to reverse and undo what sin has broken. And finally, Jesus is our peace. Jesus is the King of Peace. The people are shouting praises to Jesus as he, as he comes into Jerusalem because they wanted a King of Promise, they wanted a King of Power, and ultimately they wanted a King who would bring peace. They wanted peace. The Greek word for peace is arene. That's what's in our text. The Old Testament equivalent you'll be more familiar with, shalom. Okay? And it means so much more than just the absence of conflict. Okay? Shalom means wholeness. It means completeness. It means that there's nothing lacking. That everything is, is in its proper place and it's in harmony with the rest. Can you just think about what that would be like in your life? Everything in its proper place, complete whole, lacking in nothing, harmony. That's the kind of peace that Jesus brings. And the people knew that only the Messianic King, only the Messiah, only the promised King of David is the one who could establish that peace. It says the prophet Isaiah foretold, we're familiar with this because we refer to this at Christmas time, right? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. That was what Isaiah said 700 years before Jesus was born. This is what the Messiah is going to be. He's going to be a prince of peace. He's going to reign on David's throne, and he's going to establish justice and righteousness and peace, and of his kingdom there will be no end. If you remember when Jesus, before Jesus was born, when the angel came to Mary earlier in Luke's gospel, it's exactly what the angel says about Jesus. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, and his kingdom will have no end. Jesus is that Messiah who can bring peace, the Prince of Peace. And the fact that Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on that, that cult was a statement that this is the Prince of Peace that, G, that, that Isaiah foretold. We looked earlier at the prophecy of Zechariah as the one uh, to, to demonstrate that the Messiah is going to ride in on a donkey. That was verse 9, but look at verse 10. So he, he rides in on the donkey and it says, And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. This is the Messiah, the one who will bring peace. And so, as the disciples see Jesus coming into Jerusalem, fulfilling these prophecies, they lift up their voices and they say, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Why? Because Jesus is the King of Peace. Now, I want to pause here for just a moment, and I want us to consider the, the implications of this for our life. Do you realize that behind all of, all of your desires, there is a longing for peace? In fact, everything that we want in life, everything that we pursue, we want it because we ultimately want what it will give us. Peace, wholeness, completeness, fulfillment, lacking in nothing, everything in its proper place. Financial peace. We want to have all that we need and have no worry for the future. Relational peace. We want to know for sure that our friends or the people around us, that they will love us and support us and fight for us no matter what we go through. We want peace in our family. We want unity and harmony in our marriages and, and with our children and our household. We want peace in our vocations. We want a boss and co-workers who appreciate us and the work that we do. And we want peace with ourselves. We want to have a confidence that we measure up to our own and others' expectations and that we're worthy to be loved. That's really what we want. Behind all of our desires, whether it's money, power, pleasure, it's peace. It's wholeness. It's completeness. You see, we're not all that different from the disciples, the people, the crowds here in our text. They wanted this peace. They wanted freedom from the, their oppressors, freedom from the Romans who occupied their city. They wanted to be able to raise their families and conduct their business and to live in a community of harmony and peace. And in this moment, they believe Jesus is the one who can bring it.
Jesus is the one who can give them peace. So why, in five short days from this one, would these chants of praise turn to chants of crucify Him? Crucify Him. How could we go from Jesus riding in on a donkey, the Messiah, the promised King, the King of power, the King who's going to bring peace, and in less than a week later, the crowds are shouting, crucify Him. Crucify Him. Get rid of Him. Rid the earth of Him. You see, there is a future day when Jesus will come in glory and power and judgment. And that is what they wanted Him to do now. That is what He... They wanted Him to bring peace by bringing judgment. By bringing judgment on their enemies. And there is a day when Jesus is going to bring judgment. In fact, John says in in Revelation chapter 19, he says that when Jesus comes again, he will come riding on a white horse with the armies of heaven behind him. He will have many crowns on his head. His eyes will be like blazing fire. And out of his mouth will be a a sword, a sharp sword, by which he will strike down the nations with a word of judgment. Jesus will come in glory and in judgment. That day will come, and that is what the people wanted. And if we're honest, that's what we want too. We want Jesus to come in judgment. You see, because like Jesus' disciples, we think that the enemy is out there. Okay, The enemy is out there. And if Jesus would just come and he would bring judgment and he would set the people and the circumstances in our life in order, then we would have peace, right? Jesus, if you will just come and you'll fix everybody else, right? (laughs) You'll fix my boss, you'll fix my coworkers, you'll fix my wife, you'll fix my children, right? Then my life will have peace. I will experience peace. And like the disciples, we fail to realize that if Jesus came first in judgment, it would not result in our peace. It would result in our destruction. Because the enemy is not out there. The enemy is in here. The enemy is sin. The enemy is the the sin that hardens our hearts and makes us God's enemies. That makes us want to rebel against Him. That makes us want to, to go our own way and do our own thing. Because Jesus isn't the kind of king, he's not the, He doesn't come the way we want Him to come. He doesn't do what we want Him to do. And if Jesus comes in judgment, then it will not, be our, it will not result in our peace. It results in our destruction. And so when Jesus approached the city, we read these sobering, and sorrowful words. And when he drew near and saw the city, Jerusalem, he wept over it. There's only two places in the Bible where Jesus weeps. It was at Lazarus' death when he saw what sin had done to his friend Lazarus. And it's right here when he sees what sin has done to his people. 
the hardness of heart, their unbelief, their rejection of him as king, and he weeps. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another. Why? Because you did not know, you did not recognize the time of your visitation. What is the time of visitation? It's the day of the Lord. It's the day when the Messiah came. The Messiah came, and they missed it. They didn't see him, because he didn't come the way they wanted him to come. He didn't come to do what they wanted him to do in the way they wanted him to do it. You see, we don't need a Messiah who will come and execute God's judgment by pouring out his wrath on the unrighteous. We need a Messiah who will come to extinguish God's judgment by taking it on himself. We want Jesus to be our lion. We need Jesus to be our lamb. We want Jesus to come in power and judgment and glory. We need Jesus to be our lamb. We need him to be our substitute. And that is exactly what Jesus came to do on Palm Sunday. Coming into Jerusalem, knowing what the, the, the events of the week uh, would unfold, how they would unfold, what they meant for him, Jesus came. We want Jesus to ride in on the white horse. Jesus came in on the colt of a donkey. We want Jesus to come with many crowns. Jesus took a crown of thorns instead. We want Jesus to speak words of judgment. Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. We want Jesus to be lifted up in, in glory. Jesus was lifted up on a cross. And in so doing, Jesus became the king that we need. He is the king that we need. He is the one who's done everything that was required to give us peace. Peace with God, which will bring peace into every other area of our life. Peace in our relationships with our spouse, with our children, with our friends, with our coworkers with yourself. Jesus is the one who brings that peace, and the way he brings it is through the cross. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace shed on the cross. That is our king. That is that is how we will ultimately have peace in our life. It's not by Jesus coming in judgment. It's by Jesus taking that judgment on himself. And so as we begin Holy Week, I want us to, we need to consider that Jesus is, he is the king of promise. And I want you to think about this week, okay? As, as we, as you come into this, this week, prepare yourself uh, for all the things that, that Jesus has done 2,000 years ago in this week to be our Messiah, okay? Consider how Jesus is our King of promise, okay? All of Scripture points to Him as 
the one who would, who would be the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, right? Right there in Genesis 3, when, all, when everything went wrong, there's a promise. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And we follow that theme all the way through Scripture to see this is Jesus. Jesus is the one. He is the, the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent and undo what sin has done. He's the, the son of David who's going to establish God's kingdom forever. Consider how Jesus is the king of power who came to initiate the kingdom of God by reversing the effects of the fall, the greatest of which we will celebrate next Sunday when we celebrate the resurrection. We don't have to fear death. Death is the doorway to glory for the believer. Why? Because Jesus has gone before us. He has the power over death. And Jesus is our King of Peace. He is the only one who can bring shalom into our life. He's the one who brings peace in our relationship with God, which brings peace into other, every other arena of our life. And so to help you do that this week, I want to I leave you with a resource, a couple of resources actually. Uh, one is called The Final Days of Jesus. Okay, you can go to, if you go to Crossway and just search uh, The Final Days of Jesus, this is a, a video series for each day of Holy Week, beginning with today. In fact, our family watched it earlier. They're about five minutes long, and they walk you through what happened on this week 2,000 years ago when Jesus was uh, on his way to the cross. And it will help you prepare your heart uh, to receive Jesus as your king. Another resource that you could take is um, from Desiring God. You can download this. Uh, it's free. It's a free ebook called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. And it uh, walks through, uh, it's pretty self-explanatory, <laughs> 50 reasons why Jesus died, right? 50 things that, that were accomplished with Jesus' death. So, uh, as you go into this holy week, consider these things. Consider Jesus is your king of promise. Jesus is your king of power. Jesus is your king of peace. And then come back here next Sunday with your heart full of gratitude as we come together and celebrate the resurrection. Ready to worship Jesus as our lion because we've been redeemed by Jesus, our lamb. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Palm Sunday. We thank you for what it tells us about who you are, Lord Jesus. You are the promised king. You are the king of power, the king who can make things right in our life, the king who has defeated our greatest enemy, sin, death, and hell. And you're the king of peace. You're the king. You're the one who will ultimately put everything right in our life. Lord, I pray that we here today, would, we would pause and we would consider, have we embraced you as our king? Have we, have we seen you as our king of promise, the one that our heart longs for? Have we experienced you as our king of power, the one who comes to deliver us from the bonds of, of sin and set us free to live the kind of life that you designed for us to live? 
have we received you as our King of Peace, the King who makes us right with God, not by bringing judgment, by bearing judgment. God, I pray that, that all of us here, we would consider, have we embraced you as our King? And if not, that we would do that, that we would do that today, that we would do that this week as we reflect on the events of, of, of Holy Week. Thank you that you did this for us, Lord Jesus. We thank you that you are our lion, who is our conqueror, and you are our lamb, who is our substitute. Help us to worship you this week, and I do pray that as our hearts are full of gratitude, that we would come back here next week ready to celebrate the resurrection. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our Savior, for all that you have done. We praise you as our King. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.